But let me just start by saying, have you ever felt like you were going to miss out on something because you didn't have the details uh, or you were worried that you uh, didn't know enough? And so whatever it was that you were thinking of, you might miss out on it. When Paul's writing to the Thessalonians in this particular part of the letter in chapter 5, the Thessalonians are worried that they're going to miss out on something. And we're going to talk about what that is, uh, but let's uh, get to it by reading this passage. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. This is God's Word, eternally true. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober for those who sleep sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, Encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So you are doing with a physical building. So may you do in this spiritual house the word of the Lord. Let us pray. And now, O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable, be pleasing in your sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. Lord, let the things that we say and think about here today produce a crop in us 30, 60, and 100 times what was sown, not for our own sake, but for the sake of your kingdom and for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So now to understand this passage, the Thessalonians are worried about the day of the Lord. And if we're going to take apart these 11 verses and get some meat out of it for us to walk away with, we're going to have to look at three things. We're going to have to look at why the Thessalonians were worried We need to look at what they need to know and by what we need to know. And then we need to ask ourselves, how can we be ready for this day of the Lord that's being talked about? Okay, so why they're worried, what they need to know, what we need to know, and how we can all be ready. So you catch from this, the Thessalonians are worried about something. They're worried that they don't know the exact timing of the return of the Lord or what exactly that's going to look like. Some of them are afraid they're going to miss it. Some of them are wondering whether or not they should refinance their home, uh, given that Jesus is going to return. Some of them are wondering whether or not they should even quit their job. Some of them are wondering uh, if this day is going to pass them by. So they've asked Paul about this. And you know what Paul's response is? He says it here in verse 1. He says, you don't need to have anyone write to you about this. You already know what it's going to be like. It's going to be like a thief in the night. And Paul goes on to say, I'll tell you what else it's going to be like. 
even though you already know, it's going to be that people, uh, like when people are saying peace and security, when all of a sudden destruction is going to rain down on them, it's like labor pains coming on an expectant mother. It's like Paul saying, you see, you're worried that you need more details about the day of the Lord. You think you need a chart that explains the chronos and the kairos. Those are the words that get translated times and seasons in the ESV. Other translations say times and dates or something similar. Uh, Chronos and kairos. But uh, do you know what those mean? Both words mean time, if you were just going to pull them over easily. Uh, They get translated as time, but chronos is more a period of time, and kairos is more like a point in time. And you've seen people make charts of both, right? The periods of time leading up to the day of the Lord, and you've seen people make predictions about the date uh, that Jesus would come back. Um, And what Paul is saying, uh, history, people try to divide history up into these periods of time and try to count on Jesus coming back on these particular dates and times, and they make a guess at things that they just don't know. And Paul says, you don't need that. And aren't we like the Thessalonians? Aren't we worried that we're going to miss that day? So we think we need more and more details about it. And that's why we're afraid to study the book of Revelation, and it's why we can't help ourselves uh, to ask people to preach on it and go there and show up when they do. Both of those things are happening. Uh, It's in our culture. Our culture fears the end of the world, but we can't stop making movies about it. And they sell. What, when will it happen? How will it happen? What will happen when it, you know, when it comes? And what do I have to do to get ready for it? I don't want to miss out, so give me the details. Uh, It got to the point in the Thessalonian church that it was so bad that some people did quit their job because of the expectation that Jesus was going to return very, very soon. And that's what causes Paul in another place uh, in Thessalonians to remind them, hey, if someone won't work, uh, then they shouldn't eat either, right? Just because Jesus is coming back, don't quit your job yet. But things had gotten bad in that way. Paul instead says, hey, you don't need to worry about that. Instead, he tells them what they need to know, and it's things that we need to know as well. So what do they need to know? Paul says, what you need to know are two things. Two things. The day of the Lord is unexpected, and the day of the Lord is unavoidable. It's unexpected. It's unexpected like a thief in the night. Who goes to bed? And just before you go to bed, uh, you're about to turn off the light, and uh, you say to your beloved spouse, you say, actually, I'm going to uh, set an alarm for 2 a.m. because I want to be sure and wake up because I'm expecting a thief to come then. Nobody does that, right? Nobody does that. You can't do it. It doesn't work like that. A thief comes unexpected. When a thief is going to come is unexpected, and how a thief is going to strike is unexpected. Now, some of you are looking at me, and you're saying, yes, but we're talking about this thief now, right? So isn't that sort of like expecting the thief? To which I say, yes, we are expecting the thief, but we still can't put it on the calendar and set an alarm clock uh, and know when the thief is going to come. When a thief is going to come, that is unexpected. And that's what the day of the Lord is like. Expect the unexpected, but you can't set a date, you can't set an alarm. 
Jesus himself said that he doesn't know when that day is. He said it in Mark 13. He said it again in Acts 1. So don't worry about the when, the chronos or the kairos and the period of time or the point in time because all you need to know is this. It will come at a date and a time that is unexpected. Now that's one kind of unexpected, the date and the time. There's another kind of unexpected, and that is how will a thief strike? And a thief may strike in the dark because then you can't see him. A thief may strike when you're asleep because then you can't react to the thief. A thief may even strike if you're drunk. Why? Because if your brain is foggy, then you can't respond to the thief. Paul isn't using this metaphor of the thief and how he'll strike to make Jesus sound like a bad guy or to make us dread the coming of the day of the Lord. That's not really, that's not really the idea, right? Paul is, using this, Paul is using this negative example to talk about a positive thing. But what he is trying to tell us is that we don't want to put ourselves in a bad situation before Jesus returns because Jesus returning is a good thing. We want to be in a good situation. So when Paul talks about darkness, he's not just, you know, he's not saying everyone here should have a nightlight uh, because, you know, literal physical darkness is bad. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about darkness, the kind of darkness, uh, going down a dark alley at midnight in a strange town kind of darkness. You wouldn't put yourself in that situation, right? You wouldn't go down a dark alley at midnight by yourself in a strange town if you didn't know what was back there because there's a high probability that you could get mugged, that there would be a thief there. Don't put yourself in that situation. If you're traveling, walk in well-lighted areas because then at least if there's a thief, when it shows up, you can see him. There's no guarantee that the thief won't come if you're in a well-lighted area, but if the thief comes, you can see him. Sleeping isn't a bad thing, but if you're in the military, in a foreign country, with a weapon in your hand, guarding a multi-million dollar aircraft, then you shouldn't be sleeping. You should be ready, what? To react. You should be alert. You should be on the lookout for someone who would come and do harm to the plane or harm to you. Wide awake. And what's it like for drunk people? When you're drunk, you think you're invisible and you think you're invincible. No one can see you. No one can hurt you. But your foggy brain makes you stupid. There's nothing louder than a drunk person trying to sneak around. <laughs> right? Uh, they think no one can see them, but everyone can see them. They think they're being quiet, but they're really loud. They drop the things that they're carrying. Uh, they leave a trail of things or maybe even a trail of clothes as they fall into bed. Uh, and everyone can see, if you're laying in bed like that, that you're an easy target. If you're drunk, you are unresponsive. So don't put yourself in that kind of bad situation. So you know how a thief will strike, so stay in the light so you can see. Stay awake so you can react. Stay sober so you can respond to the thief. It's unexpected, but you want to be able to see. You want to be able to react. You want to be able to respond to Jesus when he returns 
and calls you home. You will see him. You want to see him. You want to react. You will react. You want to be clear-minded and respond to your Lord when he comes. So what else do we need to know? The day of the Lord is unexpected. The day of the Lord is also unavoidable. Unavoidable. Uh, When my wife was pregnant the first time, uh, we began getting all kinds of baby advice, as I'm sure uh, some of you uh, have experienced, some of you who are out here who are pregnant have children. Um, and uh, the advice, one piece of advice we got uh, that was as we got closer and closer to her due date, uh, if she found herself at the grocery store, she should take her cart first and foremost to the aisle where there are pickles and get a giant jar of pickles and put it in uh, the basket. Some of you are looking at me, you know what I'm talking about, right? You were given that piece of advice. And you say, why, why would you do that? Because there is a day in childbirth that is unavoidable. There is an unavoidable day. There is a moment when the labor pains come on a woman and her water breaks. It is a messy moment in the childbirth process. And, but it it will come. It does come. And if you're in the grocery store and you're carrying a jar of pickles, the, the advice goes like this. If you happen to be in the grocery store when that unavoidable moment comes and the labor pains come and you break, that you should take the jar of pickles and just drop it on the floor and make the mess even bigger. Because even though you've reached that unavoidable moment, you can't avoid the pain, you can't avoid the water breaking, but you might be able to mitigate uh, the embarrassment of that happening to you in a public place, right? The day of the Lord is unavoidable, like those labor pains. It's coming, and it cannot be stopped. The day of the Lord is not a maybe. It is a definite yes. And so we need to ask ourselves, how do we get ready for it? How do we get ready for it? Because this is the part that gives us the most uh, trepidation, So here in How Do We Get Ready, Paul gives us another picture, and Paul gives us something uh, that is practical. I mean, first he gives us a picture of the armor of God, uh, right? The breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of a hope of salvation. It's a shortened version of the picture of the armor of God that Paul gives in the book of Ephesians in chapter 6. In essence, Paul is saying that we should live like soldiers, to get ready for the day of the Lord. Now, soldiers live with a concept that in modern warfare we call operational readiness. What's that? What's operational readiness? Operational readiness is that, is that uh, sense of urgency that every soldier lives with depending on where they're at uh, in war or peace. Operational readiness may cause you as a soldier to sleep with your weapon loaded. Operational readiness causes you to leave your boots loosely laced at the side of your bed when you go to sleep at night so that if the call comes in the middle of the night, you can get them on really quickly. Operational readiness causes you to have boots with speed laces. You've heard of speed racer. These are speed laces that you stick your feet in and you, in two quick pulls, have the boot on and ready to go with your weapon loaded and go to war. The United States Air Force even talks about readiness in terms of dental readiness. 
right? They take that concept of operational readiness all the way down to your teeth. And you think, that seems really silly. And some of you are saying, yeah, but that's the Air Force, right? That's okay. I've heard all the jokes. I was, you know, and, and I wasn't on the pointy end of the stick. I was more on the butt end of the stick being in the band. Uh, but let me just ask you this question in terms of operational readiness. Have you ever tried to, to, have you ever tried to fly a $5 million aircraft that runs on windows, uh, you know, with a toothache? Because when those planes, if something happens to one of those planes, they don't just blame, automatically blame the pilot. They go back and they ask the crew chief who was working on the plane. And they ask the airman who was turning the wrench on the plane. And if the airman who was turning the wrench on the plane had a bad day, they go back to the cook in the kitchen who fed the airman who was working on the airplane. And they ask the cook what kind of day he was having. And if they find out that the cook was drunk on the night and came in and had a headache while they were making the eggs, and, uh, and the airman had a bad day as he was turning the wrench, and that caused something to happen, that eventually uh, the pilot with the toothache and the plane went down. See, they live with this concept of readiness because they want that machine to do what it's made to do because they put a lot of time, energy, and effort down to the very details of it to make it happen operational readiness in every sphere, right down to your dental readiness. And Paul is basically saying, you got to put on the armor. you got to live as a Christian with operational readiness. Now, what does Christian operational readiness look like? It's putting on faith and love as a breastplate. It's putting on the hope of salvation as a helmet. That's the picture. And I just want to say one quick thing about this. This is this is an aside, and it's, it's for free. Uh, if you're familiar with the passage in Ephesians that Paul uses to talk about the armor of God, uh, you notice that something's different here. Paul talks about faith in Ephesians as a shield, and here faith is a breastplate. There he calls the helmet, in Ephesians 6, he calls the helmet salvation, and here the helmet is the hope of salvation. So I just want to say this. Please don't overinterpret these two pictures. Eager and well-meaning people will take things like this in the Bible. Actually, I'll take like things. I'll take things like this in the Bible because you can you can you can write whole sermons on these hyper if you hyper focus on these small differences between the shield of faith versus the breastplate of faith, and then ask why did he leave out the shoes in this passage? Because he uses the shoes in the other one. Don't overinterpret passages, especially metaphors and word pictures. And I'll just say, the longer you've been a Christian and the more you've read your Bible, the more we might be prone to this. So really, what is this word picture that Paul is giving us? It should remind us of 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love. Operational readiness for the Christian depends on faith in Jesus Christ hope in His salvation accomplished for us, and love for Him and the whole human race. That's the word picture that Paul gives us. But second, he gives us something practical, and that's verse 11. Encourage one another and build one another up just as you've been doing. Keep on doing it. He says very practically, you don't need more details about the day of the Lord. You don't need to overinterpret it. Is just do the building up and the honest encouragement that it takes to live into this truth until the day that it actually arrives. It's really short. Just keep doing the things you know you're supposed to do. Encourage one another with this truth. 
build one another up in this faith, hope, and love until the day arrives. Now, we, we could end there, but I don't think we should end there because this is the truth. Some of you feel like you're in the darkness that's mentioned in this passage. And you've heard everything that I've said here before. Yes, we should come to church and we should build each other up. But Mr. Guest Preacher, you don't know me. And you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've seen. You don't know what I've experienced. And I may not know. Certainly I don't. But I know the one who has died on your behalf. And that's what makes verses 9 and 10 so important. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. He died on your behalf. He died for us. He died for us. Now, this is one of those, this is one of those places where sometimes we tend to get uh, sentimental. Preachers tend to get sentimental when they talk about the gospel and they talk about the free love of God, and they say, it's, it's, for, it's for you. I'm holding it out for you. And certainly the Bible does say that, like it's, like it's given, it's held out like this, and we're going to celebrate communion and, and talk about that. But I want, you to, I want you to get the fact that in this, in this passage, this one preposition, and I'm not over-interpreting this, it's a different, there are different ways you can say for that we bring across the word in English for for, and the, the preposition used here is literally the preposition that means on your behalf. So when it says he died for you, it's saying he died on your behalf. That's what the for you includes. And don't miss this. He died for us. And that includes you. The offer of the gospel is free to you, no matter where you're at today. If this is the first time you've heard this message, or if this is the 400th time you've heard this message, if this is the 1,000th time you've heard your, this message, the offer of the gospel is free to you. There were people in the church, in the Thessalonian church, we have to know this, that there were people in that church who didn't believe. And yet Paul says, you're all sons of light. You're all children of the day. He says, God did not place us in a place of wrath, but he placed us to share in the salvation of Jesus Christ. And there are unbelievers hearing that message in that Thessalonian church, and I think there must be some here today hearing that message for the first time. The offer of the gospel is for you. It's held out for you that Jesus died on your behalf. He died for us. That includes you. He died on your behalf. Paul uses this language. He's not trying to make people feel guilty and separated, but he's holding out the offer of life freely to all. He did not place us or appoint us for wrath. Don't get hung up this morning on election and predestination. Instead, receive this truth again, and maybe for the first time. The truth that, when the, that there's this uh, sevenfold building up of, of, this, uh, of these pairs of things that Paul puts in here. Peace and security and sudden destruction. Darkness and light. Night and day. Sleep and awake. Drunk and sober. Wrath and salvation. Died and lived. They keep stacking up on one another. And it's as if Paul is saying this thing to us. Don't forget. Jesus Christ was given to destruction. 
for your peace. While we were still sinners living in darkness, Christ endured darkness from the sixth to the ninth hour that we could be sons of light. Night and day, Christ was betrayed by evil men in the night so that we could become sons of the day and live through the day of the Lord. Sleep and awake. When Jesus' disciples and his friends fell asleep, Jesus was the one in the garden who stayed awake. And he's the one who stayed awake so that he could deliver us from our sleeping, both the physical sleep of death and the spiritual sleep of unbelief. Jesus stayed awake. Drunk and sober, Christ stayed sober on the cross so that we would not have to drink down the wrath of God ourselves. God, Christ took God's wrath that we might have salvation. And that's what those six pairs in this passage build up on each other until we get to this beautiful seventh thing that he says in uh, in verse 10, that Christ died for us He died on our behalf that we might live with him forever. That is the beauty of the gospel, that whether awake or sleep, we can be with him. Now, how does Paul say that? How can we be with him whether we're awake or asleep? You know, this is another one of those places, I'm sure you've heard it before, that the doctrine of union with Christ, our union with Christ, everywhere in Scripture where it talks about us being with him, with Christ, in Christ, together with him. That's a supernatural, spiritual thing that happens. It's, it's, it's mystical. We Preachers try to put words to it, and we fail at it, and we keep trying because of the truth of this is so amazing. That whether today you walk out those doors and you get hit by a bus and you die, you can be with Christ when you're asleep in the sleep of death. And yet today, if you walk out of here and go live and go back and deal with whatever darkness it was that you came in here with, you don't go alone to deal with that darkness. You go in the power of the Holy Spirit, awake and sober and with the Lord. We live now in the overlap of the ages, right? And that's really the only chart you need to know, that the kingdom of God has come, and the kingdom of God is coming. And if we wanted to write a hip new catechism, maybe one of the questions would be, Christian, what's your new address? And the answer would be, in Christ, our new address is life, lived at the corner of the already and the not yet. How do we live here? We live here in operational readiness of faith, hope, and love looking to Christ, the one who has come, the one who is to come, the one who takes us, whether awake or asleep, to be with him forever. Let us pray. Oh, Jesus. We worry that we don't know enough. We worry that we'll miss it. We worry that there's too much darkness in us. So we need to rehearse this gospel truth again. Oh, will you evangelize us again? That we're no longer in darkness because you were in the dark. That we no longer are asleep in the night, but we're children of the day because you were betrayed at night. That even when we were asleep, you have stayed awake. 
that you, the one watching over your church, never slumbers or sleeps. Oh, thank you that you have died on our behalf, that we might live with you now and forever. Give us the grace to go in this truth and combat the darkness and live in the readiness that comes from your gospel of peace. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.